0: We're in a little section here that's about meditation. And we're on number 326. For meditation, Master told us, relax the body. Don't be muscle-bound. In order to relax, first tense the body and inhale. Then throw the breath out and relax. Repeat this practice several times. After that, sit perfectly still. And then he says, dump your body in the infinite. (laughs) I love that. You know, this tense and relax is the idea that if you exaggerate an attitude, it'll awaken you to what you're actually doing that you're not aware of. And then you can draw all the tension out of it. It's the same, uh, it's really the same as the way karma runs in our lives. I was talking to someone recently about how we have a, a certain uh, momentum that we're born into. And oftentimes, you know, we we tend to think of our incarnations as separate. But when we die, merely taking off your body doesn't suddenly liberate you from all your attachments and your desires. It just shifts the context. Um, Swami said to me once so powerfully, just like this, nothing happens when you die. And, of course, something happens because you don't see this world anymore and you're more in a, an energy world, in the astral world. But what he was trying to get through to me was there's no automatic shift of consciousness merely because you die. Whatever your existing brities, whatever your karmic pattern is, you you go someplace else to work on them. it's a little bit like you can move from city to city, you can get a nicer apartment, you might get a worse apartment, you can move to different friends, you can get a different job, and all of these things will have an effect on how you act out your destiny. But it won't inherently make you somebody else. So a lot of times people have this thought in their mind that if I can just die, and I don't mean suicide, but if I can just die, then somehow I'll, I'll be rescued from all the things that are bothering me. And and what I've noticed is, of course, we, we, when you start a... When you look at your childhood and you sort of see what the forces are playing right from the start, or look at your upbringing and see what the forces are right from the start, the um, influences you chose to align yourself with It gives you some clues of what you came in to work on. It's not always immediately obvious. Sometimes people are put in very challenging situations. um, So you can see right from the beginning that you are not taking a holiday, that you really wanted to get on with it right away. Swamiji had had a lot of difficult physical health when he was a child. Just multiple times he was always having some illness or another. Master said that children often work out a lot of karma through illnesses. Especially little babies, they get fevers, and small children get fevers. It's a way of just using that body to work out karma since they don't yet have the intellectuality or the freedom to do it in other ways. But oftentimes, also, what I've observed and noticed in myself is that a karmic pattern has to intensify. I, I, the, fa- the family, my family of origin, as they say, my family I was raised in gave me many good qualities, but they also exacerbated some of my worst qualities. Which, when I began to know about reincarnation and the idea that you can choose your own environment or that the soul chooses the right environment, I thought to myself, why didn't I incarnate with people who would fix my difficulties instead of making them worse? It just seemed like, I thought, like, what was I thinking? But I realized that Because they exacerbated those weaknesses in me, they became larger they they loomed larger and larger in my awareness to the point where I became conscious of them and secondarily motivated to shift them. And Swamiji says even in superconscious in superconscious living techniques, one of the ways to help overcome a shortcoming is to continually exaggerate it in your own mind to the point where you rebel against it. and like, you know, like I'm just clumsy. I don't really ever do anything right. Nobody really likes me. Everything I try to do fails. You know, just all of my life is filled with bad luck until finally some part of you says, well, not really. There's a few good things about me. I'm not really that bad. At the point at which your subconscious mind will turn positive and start supporting you instead of suppressing you, he said, that, that can be your, your starting point. Otherwise, the subconscious mind continually works against us and we're always at war with ourselves. Oh, I'm really so terrible. Why am I so terrible? And so you just have to say, well, you are. I remember this one woman who had uh, a terrible self-image, just terrible self-doubt. And, Swamiji, and she, Swamiji had to counsel her over many years, repeatedly, really always for the same thing. And he finally said to her, just for the sake of experiment, let's assume that absolutely your worst fears about yourself are all true. (laughs) He said, now what would we do? Because all the energy was holding them at bay, so maybe we just collapse into them and then see what we can build out of the wreckage. So you, you create it, you increase the tension to the point where it's become so exaggerated that you can actually pull it back. And, and mastered this. In this particular instance, he's just talking about meditation. I mean, he's talking about meditation. He's not talking about the psychological, emotional things I was talking about. But it's the same principle, because we we all deal with this. You know, the body just doesn't want to sit still, and it keeps intruding itself. And I I um I've noticed. I I every so often I look at my at my videos of myself because it's useful to sort of see, because you don't notice something. And I, I noticed a video that I had made where I sit absolutely still, I speak perfectly into the camera, and I'm twirling my thumbs the entire time like this. <laughs> I mean, like nothing else in me is moving. But whatever tension I had, had just gotten all the way to here, and through the whole video, I just sit there just absolutely centered, just doing this. <laughs> and I, I had no idea that I was doing it. But, it, it, you know, these, these things are part of us and we don't really know. And when you sit to meditate, oh my gosh, you discover all kinds of mental and physical things that you just never knew were there. You know, the tapping of the foot, whatever it might be. So we have to try to get a grip on that. In one way, this is just what he suggest, suggests, which all of you who study these teachings, you know, sometimes these things seem so simple that we're we're not inclined to really appreciate what they are but if you really do that before you meditate and try to just find make tension in every part of yourself then when you actually release it you realize that what what you didn't even know was there same as with I didn't even know it was a fault until it got so bad that it was in front of me all the time oh i see that's where my pain is coming from and it's it's a, a very helpful technique in all respects So then Swami says, number 327, this is a really fun visualization. Wait a second. Yes. Another helpful hint he gave us for relaxing the body was to visualize one's skin as the outer earth surface, the muscles and internal organs as the continents, the bones as the underlying rock formations the cities as one's teeming thoughts and mental tendencies. Visualize the heaving oceans, he said, as one's breath, the blood coursing in one's veins as the liquid lava flowing deep under the earth, and one's own heartbeat as the divine energy pumping life into the whole planet. Isn't that a fun visualization? You know that, What what? Th- there's two ways that you can kind of disappear as a as a separate entity, one is to make yourself small that you so small that you disappear, and the other is to make yourself so large that you encompass everything so we we inhabit this body, and so this is an idea of a way to just um, make it so far beyond our individual preoccupation with it that that we can uh, release ourselves into the infinite just. Feeling your part, yourself a part of everything. It's we're so accustomed to seeing our physical body as a separate force, and when when one desires to move, you can move. I can move my hand, but I can't move yours, <laughs> and I can't move somebody's hand in Chicago. And so there's there's this inclination to draw this really small circle, but uh, what we're trying to do when we're meditating is we're trying to realize the fact. That all of these uh, boundary lines are completely arbitrary and, in truth, don't exist. I was remembering the chant, "I am the bubble, make me the sea." You know, we just we, and we think about that. You think of the size of the ocean and you think of the size of the bubble, and we recognize just even in that image how tightly how tightly we're clinging to this tiny aspect of reality and calling it me. So since we're already in the body, Master suggests we just make the body infinite. I, I've been told that the, the, in, the, in the great scale of creation between the size of a planet and the, the largest and the smallest that the human body is right in the middle that there is as much in creation that's smaller than us as there is bigger than us, which is really sort of a fun way to look look at it. Swamiji was always very fond of the, uh, I guess you'd call it a ride, but the experience that you could have in Disneyland where you kept getting smaller and smaller until you were inside the atom and everything would... uh, You you just see things proportional all, all to your point of view. And if we think of ourselves as not perceiving reality only through what the physical eyes tell the brain, but perceiving reality the way the masters perceive reality. Master said when he was crippled, when his knees were crippled because he was taking karma for his disciples at the end of his life and he wasn't able to walk. And he said, well, he said, to, let's see, some, some people's. I, I'm not going to quote it exactly, He said, some people may have legs that work, he said, but they can't walk all over like I can, he said, (laughs) meaning that his consciousness, of course, he could be aware anywhere in the world that he wanted to be. So these are the, the, again, sometimes we hear these things and we don't understand how big the implications are. I mean, what would it be if when we moved, we really actually felt like we're just, moving in this whole sphere and I'm as much the planet as I am my own body, It would, it's harder then to take our little foibles and sufferings as seriously, isn't it? What causes them to loom so intense in our lives is our, uh, the closeness to them. And if we regularly meditate that we are as big as the whole planet, then when some little offense happens in our tiny universe, it's a little harder to See it as so well earth shaking, as you as we do when we're not tuned in like that. Plus, it's fun, you know. In meditation, it's very interesting. Um, having so little, well, I should say having no actual experience of infinite consciousness. So little doesn't even begin to describe it. But just simply not living in on that level. I have some nice meditation sometimes, but not not real super consciousness, and. Uh, there's letters from Master to Rajasi, um, which, are, which are largely unpublished and unfortunately may never be published. But there's a few of them in which, in which he suggests interesting things that Rajasi might try. You know, different ways of being infinite, different aspects of the infinite creation that you can experiment with. And it's, it's like, I have this, I've always had this idea that there's this like end point. You, you hit samadhi and that's that. But Rajasi was a, a liberated soul who had infinite consciousness, but he spent hours in meditation. What was he doing? <laughs> and so Master sort of uh, implies and and the other one, and you've heard me say this before, Lahiri Mahashaya kept a diary of his meditation experiences, and he was he was doing things in that state of consciousness, experimenting with ways to help the world, experimenting with ways to help elevate animals, sending his energy to places where help was needed, assisting Divine Mother in certain projects. There's somewhere there's a story about, I think it was a vision of Rajasis, after Master passed. And I believe the way he put it was that Master sent Sri Yukteswar to talk to him because Master was busy elsewhere. Now, what on earth does that mean, Or I should say, not even what on earth? What in infinity does that mean? But it implies a great deal that we don 't know, which is good. It behooves us to stay humble about these things and not not even pretend that we can understand. i 've shared with you on one occasion, I asked Swami some slightly obscure question about some detail of creation, and his 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 uh, eloquent response was to just open his hands and shrug his shoulders you know just like that he didn't put words to it it just went like that like there's just some things we're just not going to know and that's that's fun i mean when i first came to ananda all these decades ago i was i was young in my in years but i'd already run through a number of experiences that were supposed to last longer than they did and so it was a little disconcerting to me because if I ran through everything before I got to be thirty, what would happen then? So I, nev- I i really didn't know. I knew that Ananda was utterly captivating to me, and Swamiji was completely. You no, know, it was just my definition of reality by that point. But I really didn't know if it would last. And and that's been the most fun thing about the spiritual path, or one of the most fun things, is that it's infinite. And so, until I am, there's always a, a space in front of me. Lo, you know, the boundaries always, as you move toward the boundary, the boundary moves back. And it, makes, it also makes you humble to realize that. You, you get much more relaxed about what you do and you don't know because how could, how could we? And you, you just surrender to the whole grand mystery of the whole thing. Even when Master um, had his Mahasamadhi in 1948 and was for several days in a very high state of consciousness and the nuns were taking notes and he was conversing with Divine Mother and he, he said, Oh, Divine Mother, that's how you do it. Like, what? No, what was he seeing? He said, she took him all over the universe. Oh, that's how you do it. So it it just tells you that whatever we think, we really don't know. And and little exercises like this one, where we just try to make ourselves one with the universe, even just in an imaginary physical sense, can really just begin to open our minds. Because you see, what you're doing with a visualization like that is you're using your power of imagination to attune you to something that is true. So it isn't like just a visualization from the subconscious. This is, is like you use your conscious mind to imagine a superconscious reality so that it will attune you with that superconscious reality so that then you will actually experience it. You see, it's very different, which is why these are very helpful. And so then he says after that, Don't move a muscle while meditating, said the master. Don't twitch a limb. Feel the life inside you rather than your physical body as your reality. That's also very interesting. Whenever I I play my... Master said at the end of life, at the end of every day, Swami suggested, Master said, you should give back to God that whole day. Everything that you did, all that you accomplished, all your attachments, not being so good at that myself i I developed a similar practice which I, I don't do all the time, but I do sometimes, which is I imagine my death in a rather it's a cheerful picture for me i mean i'm not afraid of that moment, and I've been with enough people who've died that i can I can visualize the scene and I can project my imaginary ideas about it but uh just the idea of really just letting go of the physical body and recognizing that all we ever experience is our own consciousness and we are habituated to expressing it through the body but it's it's no, it's no they're not as closely related as we think they are so having watched people shed their physical bodies and watched them grow close to that I kind of know what the expression on the face looks like and I, I can't. I have never been able to project myself super-consciously into their actual consciousness, but it's a very fun experiment. And I also imagine, when I do it, I imagine who might be there. And I, and I know, again, from experience, I hear them whispering to each other over here, you know, is she still breathing? Is her heart still beating? And I, I recognize the person who's dying may be able to hear but is so disinterested in conversing. And it's, it's all that is really marvelously liberating and enjoyable to just recognize, oh yeah, that day will come. In fact, one of one of the things that really got me on the spiritual path, and this was, maybe I was 18, 19, it was quite early in my process, I just, one day, I, this was after I had awoken to the possibility of self-realization, and it was the idea of death, I realized that even though I was so young, the time would come when I would die. And I had no expectation that I would die young. I really had no thought about it. But I knew that the day would come when I would die, that the moment would be there. And when I was dying, that would be all there is. I wouldn't be 19 thinking about it. I would be on my deathbed. And I also understood vividly, as as one would, if you think for even a split second, that nobody, nobody could come with me. You know, my my friends could comfort me, someone could hug me, people could be nice to me in normal life, everything. But there would be a moment when it would be absolutely solitary. Just absolutely solitary. It's a very powerful thought. And I, in, in, in my memory, I feel like I was awake all night thinking about it. Whether that was literally true or not, I don't know. But I remember just trying to imagine every possible Thing that could make that not true. I'm on another planet, um, you know, I'm just a thousand different things. I'm buried under the earth, I'm it, just anything. But no matter how I did it, I was always alone with my consciousness, which was a huge incentive for me to get my consciousness organized. That's all. There's a story, uh, Stephen Levine, who was a pioneer. In conscious dying, uh, many decades ago, I think he he's probably still an authority, but he he was the first one to really chronicle the changes people go through and tell people how to help each other and He talked about the stage that people often go through when they know they're going to die and when they're on their deathbed essentially, and the body ceases to respond, and you can no longer get up and open the window, go downstairs, and put a pizza in the oven you know, go out to a movie because the body simply won't respond. And so you're still conscious, you're still there, but you can no longer express your consciousness through your body. And what he was also talking about is we relieve the tension in our consciousness by acting through our bodies. And we're, we're very accustomed to, as he put it, solving the problem of consciousness on the physical level. And of course, this is what people do to distract themselves all the time. The the, the the habit people have of just turning on a television and letting it run all the time. It's it's really a because I'm very sensitive to noise. It's not something that I can imagine. But people just want a background, and you know. And nowadays, um, I remember sitting with my elderly aunt watching the news when I was visiting her. And, and now they put noise behind the news, you know, instead of somebody just reading it, there's some kind of a thumping, sometimes music, some kind of a thumping. And she kept trying to, you know, ask me if I couldn't just tune it in better because behind the voice there was this other thumping sound, which, because she was a little hard of hearing, made it very difficult for, he, for her to hear. I hadn't even really thought about it. I didn't watch television very much, ever. But I just realized you know, it's not enough to just have the man speaking. Now you have to fill in all around it with other thumping noise so that we're always distracting our consciousness from the question of consciousness. But then he says, Stephen the Vine says, you, the reach a point in the death process where you have to solve the problem of consciousness on the level of consciousness because that's all you have. And that's, he said, traditionally what happens at that point is that people often become very, very agitated. Very agitated. And it's a, a, a progressive stage. in the dying process is this period of intense agitation because all of those uh, restlessnesses are arising and they have no outlet. Ideally, and what often happens, is that a realization that consciousness can be, is just fine. Consciousness alone is enough. And often people will go through that agitation and then become very calm. And then they'll say, well, then they died peacefully because they became aware of the fact that this is fine. Now, yogis, people who meditate, are more accustomed to it. So it doesn't happen for us in the same way. Although I've seen it happen a little. Why is is my leg not responding? Why is my arm not responding? Why does the coffee taste so bitter to me? Just things begin to leave and there's a... But yogis have more of a context to adjust. But even ordinary worldly people have souls and are all children of God. <laughs> and when you, can't, when you can't find another solution, often acceptance comes. Not always, but often. So anyway, so that's what Master's talking about. Don't move a muscle while meditating. Don't twitch. Feel the life inside you rather than your physical body as your reality. That's why when we meditate, we watch the breath also. I mean, the breath is a physical thing, but it's a way of putting you in contact with the fact that there's this internal reality that is not dependent on physical movement. And then we move move more and more subtly into the Kriya breath and all of that. But it's it's marvelous to just try to reduce yourself down to that. I remember this Swami. Uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. What is his Sha- Shankar. Shankarananda? Thank you, Shankarananda, who's a, a who, who's a Kriya yogi through Sri Teshwar's line, and he came to Ananda to give a satsang. I had such a fun experience with him. He's a very traditional yogi, an Indian man. I drove him up to Ananda village, and we spent we talked about fifteen minutes, and he was quite distressed that Swami wasn't teaching us enough Sanskrit. And he argued at great length about that we needed more Sanskrit and he offered to send some tutors over from Rishikesh and that he would tutor us more in Sanskrit. I was courteous, but you know, a little doubtful that we would really want that. But I, I left it to him to work out with Swami Kriyananda. So first we have this conversation about Sanskrit, about how important it is now. It's absolutely essential. Then he needed to make a phone call and I pulled out my little tiny flip phone, which is what I had at the time. And he looked at it and he said, "Really, you're using this?" You know. And I thought, what a strange combination of things. You know, this is such a useless piece of lack of technology. He wanted one of the fancy phones like he had. So on one hand, he's insisting on uh, Sanskrit, and on the other hand, he can't believe that I'm so behind in what's going on in Dwaparanya. You know, it's just a funny world. When I was in Israel, at the uh, Mount of Temptation. We'd been warned that the, the Greek Orthodox monks there supervise you and you're, you really can't sit and meditate in all the various places you would like to sit and meditate. As it happened, they were quite inattentive that day. But you walk down, this, it's a very long, narrow monastery, and you finally get to the final end, little chapel, where the, where the stone is sort of in a, behind a glass case, which is said to be the stone where Jesus stood and Satan suggested that he could throw himself down and that God would save him. So you're right there. It's pretty. And just before you, we, I got there, there was a very aged Greek Orthodox monk in his extremely traditional garb with his long beard and the whole thing like that. And he's just kind of sitting by the side until his cell phone rings. <laughs> I mean, we're up. We're at the top of this mountain in the middle of the desert in this ancient monastery. And this old monk reaches into his cell phone and starts having a conversation. It's a fascinating age. It just couldn't be more fun. Left, right, and center. Okay. And of course he had a signal. He had an excellent signal up there too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was a moment. It was a wonderful moment. And I was glad he was on the phone because that allowed me to do what I wanted to do, like 15 feet away from him. Okay. Any questions or comments? Okay, number 328. In 1950, Master was planning to return to India. I asked him, sir, have you seen most of the people you saw waiting for you in America during your 1920 vision in Ranchi?" That's in Autobiography of a Yogi, where he was running the school there, and then he had a vision of all these people, and he said, Americans, these people must be Americans. And then that was the, how he put it, the guide that caused him to come to America. So he saw all his disciples in America. So Swami asked him a very interesting question. You saw them all in vision then? Are there any that you haven't met? And Master said, practically all of them, the Master answered. In another place, Swami doesn't put this here, it must have been another conversation. Master said, I'm waiting now for just a few more. There was one lady, uh, it might have been Sister Shraddhananda, but I'm not sure who it was, who saw Master at the Biltmore Hotel on, uh, uh, what day did he die? March 7th. She saw him in the hallway that day. And then he died that night. And then she became his disciple. So, was she the last one? Or were there people in the banquet hall that were the last ones? You know, One never had a chance to ask him that question. Wasn't that Sister Sister Shanti? Could be Sister Shanti. I, I I wasn't sure what the name was. Yes? Could easily I accept the, the correction? It was one of the sisters, one of the ones who became a nun there. She was a secretary to someone in the hotel. Yeah, but you, you know, you just see how uh, it confounds. It raises the question, which I I tend not to want to talk about, about free will, and how much is predestined and how much is just there to happen. But that Master could see us. Master was outside of time, so he could see the the project, the trajectory. Also, it shows you how uh, personal is the connection to every disciple. He, He saw their faces. He knew where they were. Once again, you just kind of say, wow, Divine Mother, I'll be interested to see how you do it when I finally see how you do it. Who knows? Any questions or comments? Okay. Number 329. Sir, Clifford asked, How can one become more humble? Humility, the master replied, comes from seeing God, not yourself, as the doer. When you see him acting through you, how can you be proud of anything you do? I could sit here all day singing my own praises. It would mean nothing to me. I would know that I was giving praises only to God. Humility lies in the heart. It is not a put up job. You must feel that everything you do is accomplished by Him alone through you. An interesting memory of my experience with the Master was that I never saw in his eyes even a flicker of egoic self awareness. The self of which he was unceasingly aware was the divine within him, selfhood expanded to infinity. A comment we heard frequently from him acquires special meaning from the foregoing observation. I killed Yogananda long ago, he said. No one dwells in this temple now but God. Isn't that a sweet, just such a sweet thing. You know, this this humility, the other definition, which he doesn't include here, that that Master said is, humility is self-honesty. And self honesty is one of the most fundamental and important aspects of the spiritual path, especially when we understand it. Humility and self honesty is not the same as self abnegation. People get confused and think that the way to be humble is to constantly put yourself down. I remember this woman, musician at Ananda, who played an instrument beautifully, and she, she had what you would call reverse ego. She was always so self conscious. That no matter what happened, it, it, she, she drew it to herself in a personal way. But she drew it to herself in a personal way by always feeling inadequate, which was just another way of being self-preoccupied. And you know, She would often play, and I would say, you know, she played beautifully. She played the flute, she played it beautifully. I said, you know, it was so beautiful. And she would always say, well, no, it wasn't really very good. And I made some mistakes, or, you know, it didn't come out like I wanted it to. And that went on for some time. Finally, I said, I compliment you and then you insult me. I tell you that you played beautifully and you essentially tell me that I must be such a lousy musician myself that I can't really tell, because that was an awful performance and how could I possibly think it was any good? I said, I don't really think this is the right response. But it was the truth. It was, I say you're good, she says, no, I'm not. But who's being insulted in that, you see? I mean, you see what happens when you become so self-absorbed? I had this exchange with a woman friend of mine, which recently, she told me, actually helped her. It was one of those terrible risks that afterwards I really was afraid. She was persistently depressed. And she was depressed, and when she became depressed, she would project upon everyone, you know, that she was inadequate in this way and inadequate in that way and terrible in this way and terrible in that way. And she was a good friend, and I did my best to try to cheer her up. And one day I just became impatient instead of you know, just being sympathetic for her suffering, I just became annoyed. And I said, look, listen to yourself. I said, Swami Kriyananda thinks highly of you. I think highly of you. And then I listed about 10 really marvelous people at Ananda who all think very highly of her. And I said, and you posit your contrary opinion against all those people as if they're too stupid to know and you're the only one who can tell. And she just look shocked for a moment? And then she began to laugh. And she recently told me that it really did shock her out of that thought. You know, sometimes when you deal with people who are a little mentally unbalanced, it's not uncommon to reach a point where their selfishness just infuriates you. You know, you you try to be patient, but there's a point at which the sheer selfishness of insisting on their aberrated mental perception of themselves, just becomes so annoying you can't stand it anymore. And on more than one occasion, I've either had to walk away, or in this case, I just spoke my mind, and thank you, God, it was inspired, not crushing. Sometimes it's been crushing. But, but that is what happens. Self-declared reality that, I, that is, is subconsciously based, that I absolutely insist is true. then that's not humility to always say, well, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. Humility is is honesty. This woman, to use her as a random example, is immensely talented and extremely good at everything that she does. Now, that doesn't help to say, I'm immensely talented and extremely good at everything I do, because then you've just suddenly created, you've separated yourself out. Like, why are you good at it? Where does that talent come from? What is it that really makes you good? And of course... What makes us really good at anything is when we attune ourselves to a higher level of consciousness. And, it, and it's, it, it's antithetical for the limited ego to claim that it actually owns that level of consciousness. But it's, it's dishonest to say that sometimes you're not a channel. I mean, because sometimes you are a channel. But it's what comes through you. It's the music. There was a man at Ananda who played the piano beautifully, Gary Goldschneider, and uh, I've, I, he's subsequently become extremely good at astrology. He's just a, a man who knew how to apply himself, so he shifted from a profession that was not so good at supporting his children to one that was. And, uh, but he, he, he and Swami were friends. He was in Nevada City, <clears throat> and he would come visit every once in a while. And he and Swami <coughs> he and Swami could talk about music on a level that very few other people could because they were so deep in it. but I remember Gary was once trying to articulate something and he couldn't say it in words, and he just sort of rushed over to the piano there was a Swami had a grand piano, a small grand piano at that time. Gary just put his hands on the keyboard and just began to play something that demonstrated what he was trying to articulate in words, and it was so. Impressive to me that there was no music in the room, and then suddenly the room was filled with music. I mean, it it just happened so fast, because he was so facile, he was just able to do that. But it it was so dramatic to me that this man is a channel for the music. And he was using his own hands and his years of concentrated training. And it was very interesting, because somehow or another in that context later, I, I thanked him for the music just said something about the music was so magnificent. He said, oh, it's so relaxing when people compliment the music. He said, so many people just compliment me. (laughs) And he says, like, to him, the, the music was the point. And when the music was good, he was as happy as everybody else was. Look at the music. And that's really when we're kind, when we do something creative, when we dance, when we paint, when we speak when we just have a uh, when we smile it's like it's not the one who's doing it what makes it good is that something good has happened and where where does goodness exist where does goodness emanate from where does intelligence insight intuition come from hari das's fabulous way of turning a compliment when people would say his talk or his chanting or whatever was wonderful he would just say, yes, something inspiring happened and I got to be there (laughs) because it was the it that was the joy. And that's the self-honesty. Oh yeah, something really beautiful did happen. I'm extremely pleased with the way it came out. And if it isn't as, as nice as we would like it to be, then we need to resolve to do what we can to make it better. But we won't make it better by narrowing our focus down to the instrument. What we have to do is we have to Tune in more deeply to that which 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 we are trying to channel, and whether I mean just even a tune. I mean I don't say even because it's not a small thing, but like sensitivity to your ch- your child's reality, so that you could be a better instrument of Divine Mother to that child. It doesn't have to be some grand artistic work. Uh, walking in nature, keeping your posture straight, doing the doing a yoga posture correctly, meditating. It's the it's that which flows through us that we should concentrate on, and the instrument then becomes more and more uh, transparent, and therefore that which flows through becomes more and more perfect in itself. Let, um, I I I was I remember commenting to Swamiji about this irony that I perceived, which is the more perfectly one expresses the infinite and then and then, if you express something and do it well, people tend to want to give you credit for it. but by definition, the better the better you are as a channel, the less you deserve the compliment <laughs> and, and so it's a it, it's just like if they're complimenting you, which is nice. if people like it, I mean, why would they not? If you're trying to communicate, you want people to. But then comes the part where he's talking about. Where you're you're neither swelled up by the praise nor depressed by the criticism. It's just an impersonal fact, it's self honesty. And and you don't you don't claim it and you don't repudiate it. It just is what it is. When I tell the woman she played beautifully and she did, she just needs to say, Yes, it was beautiful, wasn't it? Or I love that melody or I always feel inspired. You you it's worthwhile if if you are in a position where either where you receive a lot of criticism or you receive a lot of praise one or the other it's really worthwhile to spend the time meditating on really what is the proper response until you can become until you until it's your genuine response to the way things happen people want to 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 thank you people want to give back to you so you you, you can't be hurtful like that woman was to me. Or you can't be hurtful and just sort of passing it off. You have to be willing also to accept their energy. But you have to be very conscious not to accept it in such a way that it's going to constrict you as a channel instead of opening it up. And Swamiji used to manifest this all the time. He would talk in such a childlike way with such childlike enthusiasm for all the things that he had accomplished. And really, some people just were so put off by it because they couldn't imagine it was anything but egoic. And they really didn't know how to understand that he was just celebrating the fact that Divine Mother could come through and do all these wonderful things. And he would openly and honestly say, someone asked him once, what have you done? Of all that you've accomplished, what are you most proud of? And he thought, what have I done? Just like, it was just like the question, he didn't have a place for the question. He wasn't stupid. He knew how many books he'd written and all of that. But phrased like that, he just didn't know where to put the question. What have I done? And how could I be proud of what I've done? It's like being proud that the sun has risen over here and that it looks beautiful on the clouds. I'm so proud of that sunset. It's like, really? How could that possibly be? You see, it it needs to become that ludicrous to you. Otherwise, it's just bondage, and you're just going to have to run the whole cycle again. Yes. So I had a doubt. I I so Navashan will.
1: So uh my question is that we are often told that like we should see the god as the doer. It is easy to see god as the doer when you are doing something excellent and it's it's uh, it's a great work and absolutely god must have come through you and that's why you were able to make it happen. But what about the times when you are doing really a terrible job? And, and how do you say that God is the doer, and not, you know, on, on those occasions?
0: So Jesus, <laughs> yeah, on, on many very moving occasions, he said, God is pleased, of course, if you lay your successes at his feet. But he's more pleased, pleased when you lay your failures. Because it actually takes more detachment to lay your failures at the feet of God. Because we tend to want to cling to our weaknesses. So that's a beginning point, but then the question is, how do you do it? Because we tend to think... See, we have a very confused idea of how progress is made. We tend to think that if we're not guilty and uh, self-flagellating and down on ourselves and, and insulting to ourselves, that we're, that we're never going to get any better. But if we project that out and think about, let's say, a child who makes a mistake and you just really tell that child what a stupid child he is and how how could he possibly have made such a thing and look at that disgraceful action, what are the chances that the child will get better? And why does the child make such a mess? Well, because he's a child. He just hasn't developed the capacity yet to do it better. So the art of being able to say, well, honey, this was a good effort, but you know, I really think that if you spent a little more time or thought about it differently, or went outside and ran around a little and then came back, you've got something better in you. Then you know that, well, there's a chance. I mean, that's just a random way of saying it. But you work with the child in such a way that he'll grow to it. And you're not really furious with him for being seven. So self-honesty starts from the fact that, wow, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. Because part of it is that there was an experience where um, uh, this woman had had done something careless and because of what she said or failed to say, the context is a little, I think she said something very careless that caused a, a long ripple of confusion that ends up as a big wave against Swami and he had to do a lot to straighten it all out, all because of her action. Three or four days later, Swami notices that she's still really moody and really down. He says, what's wrong? Oh, she says, I just, you know, I'm so upset, I caused so much trouble, how could I have said that? And Swami, instead of saying, you know, anything that, that was expected, he said, how egoic. That was his response. And her, I mean, her defense was, egoic, but I'm down on myself. <laughs> And then he he made the distinction between being egotistical and being egocentric, being egoic, which is self-concerned. You know, egotistical we tend to think of as proud. Egoic is just having an exaggerated preoccupation. And then his answer, his explanation was really interesting. He said, you're so shocked that you could make a mistake that four days later you're still worshipping it. (laughs) And, And that was like... Yeah, because that's really what it was. It was just so startling and horrifying to her that she could make an error that she absolutely could not think about anything else. So the premise is, what made you think that you were beyond making errors? This is where true humility is self-honesty. It wasn't a good thing to have done, but it was just revealed that in that particular respect she was seven. And so now that she's learned a little bit about it, Okay, let's let's see how we can grow. But if instead you take it to yourself, you never you never do progress, because you become so egoically involved in your limitations that you get to just keep them, forever. Now, I'm not saying this is easy because the 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 karmic habit of of not being truly humble, but instead being uh, self flagellating, which is not humility. It's like, wow, I really messed up that time. I'm six. You know, and it's really embarrassing to be six. You know, we really don't want to be six. And especially when you live in a community or you or you work in a corporation where they're not even nice to you and everybody knows that you're six. You know, it's just terrible. <laughs> and so it, it there's a lot that has to be overcome. But at some point, you finally realize, well, I'm six. Like, what is the big deal here? And I'll never get to be seven unless I can just be six. There was this little girl in the community. She was, uh, anyway, she's a very strong-minded child. And it was her birthday. And I said, uh, how old are you? Are you, let me think of what it was. Are you seven now? No, she said, I'm eight. No one would think I was only six now. (laughs) It was just like, whoa, okay, I get it. (laughs) She was the same child to whom I said, she was dressed up in Indian costume one day, she was about the same age. I said, my dear, you look just like an Indian princess. No, I don't. I said, but you do, you're just so beautiful, you look just like an Indian princess. She said, she absolutely refused it one more time. I tried a third time and then she said, I am not a princess, I am a queen. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. That's what you look like. <laughs> Definitely. But that's... Why would people think that we're eight when we're only seven? It's a very, very... You know, I'll tell you one more part of this and then we'll take a break. My my uh, lifespan as a corporate trainer was about the lifespan of is it how long does a butterfly live or a fly? You know, something that just like flowers and then dies almost before it really has any experience. That was mine. And I was in some corporate setting, and I don't know what I was supposed to be doing. But I, I, I tried to get people to understand that uh, if we concentrate on our strengths, we can grow better than if we always are concentrating on our weaknesses. I mean, I was so ignorant, I had no idea the culture I was in. I mean, it was crazy. That's why my lifespan was so short. But... Um, So I sort of asked people to introduce themselves according to their strengths. And one person, the first person did it, the second almost did it. You know, he was half and half. And by the third person, he was introducing himself by his limitations. And the fourth and fifth were doing exactly the same. They were incapable of speaking about what was good about them. They were so trained to think about what was bad about them. It was heartbreaking. And I also realized that this is not an environment I can work in. But I I had a woman's retreat, I did the same thing. Introduce yourself according to what your friends love the most about you. First person did it, second person did it, third person was beginning to waver, fourth, fifth, and sixth, we were down, back down, you know, in the dregs again. It's just, it's a complete, because you see, it's not really humility because it's not really honest. And that's where the definition, self-honesty, is really what we want even, I'll take it one more, like, even if you're the best violinist in the world, Swami Kriyananda would always go to Book Buyers, which is the store that Ron Morten and Sita had for years, hundreds, thousands of used books. Swami said, for an author, it's kind of a mixed experience to go into a used bookstore <laughs> and see all of these books that nobody's reading anymore. <laughs> and uh, he would, like, the Helen McGinnis was an extremely... Famous and popular artist for a time, author for a time, and then after a while, you couldn't find her books anywhere. They were just gone, or you'd see, you know, dozens and dozens of copies that nobody wanted anymore. So maybe you're the best on the planet, the most popular, but then you die and everybody forgets you. And so you're the best on the planet, but like, how many planets are there? You know, it's just like, what's where? What is the truth? But yeah, I'm the best on the planet. Isn't that fun? And then I won't be because I'll die and I'll be forgotten. So you, you play at all sides, but with the truth, and then you get much easier about it. All right, let's take a break. Okay, Anu, what are you going to say?
2: Uh, yes, uh, my name is Anu. I'm a spiritually inspired author, artist, and guide from Delhi. And uh, when she was talking about the strengths, I just remembered an ex a little exercise I do with groups of people when I'm doing workshops. And this was actually from the mother and in those teachings. And what she says is that make a list of your weaknesses and your strengths. And then whatever your biggest weakness is, mm-hmm. go to the extreme opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And that is the manifestation of this lifetime for you that is your agenda for this lifetime huh. and your strengths are your tools to get to that
0: uh-huh.
2: so it works beautifully so if you know if you're just honest about what is, what is my greatest shortcoming and you write that down and to manifest its complete opposite is the agenda that we have come with okay
0: it works for me
2: I'll so it. I realized <laughs> when I had first read about it and I you know thought what was my greatest weakness and it was being jealous, you know, why does this person have this and I don't and why is this person like this and I'm not and I realized jealousy is like a very crude form of self-love and the Mm -hmm. extreme opposite of that is selfless love, Mm -hmm. which is actually really love and my strengths at that point I discovered were that I could communicate uh-huh. fairly decently and through that communication through that connecting with people I kept overcoming that and now when I see Madhuri Dikshit dance I feel, oh I'm dancing because she's, she's an extension of me and why be jealous of somebody else uh-huh. because they are, we are all extensions of each other and somebody dances well and somebody paints well and if you're even blessed with the ability to appreciate that well, you're gifted because somebody is manifesting
0: it for you That's a lovely thought you know, there's another... Here, well, you can just give it to one of the gentlemen there. Thank you, Anu, very much. Nice to have you with us. Um, I've, I've been amused by the fact that sometimes a person's weakness, and I won't say their greatest weakness, but sometimes the, an obstacle that they have in their life is their best quality taken too far. Yeah, it actually, it's actually... It's really interesting. I first realized that when I have a tremendous enthusiasm and I also have a, a Gemini interest in just about everything, and uh, uh, also an inclination to do many different things. But I realized that the, that the biggest obstacle to success in my life at that time was that I was so scattered. But of course, that enthusiasm was also what gave me magnetism, and was I was able to draw people to, together and make things happen. Or myself, apply myself because of the enthusiasm, but I just cross the center line with it. So it's sort of like these things are not linear. What we're trying to do is we're trying to become centered in a certain reality and not just keep going. And that's also the common mistake people make is they tend to try to solve problems in the same way. We tend to try to use the same skills to solve the same problems. I'm not disciplined enough. I'll just be more disciplined or Whatever it might be, we we often really get confused. We're so hard to notice ourselves. It's just really astonishing. So I think the idea of introducing yourself by your best qualities... Maybe we should all make ourselves new name tags. New name tags that said, I I, I tend to be... I'm very compassionate, you know. (laughs) I'm quite focused. Hello, I'm focused. (laughs) Nice to meet you, compassion. (laughs) And you're calm. Oh, nice to see you. The, 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 the Dominor community in Italy, they all take names and they take animal names, animal and nature names. Am I correct in that? So they all, they all everybody, so you know someone is, their names are, in Italian of course, but their names are eagle or oak or um, ocean, just because they, that epitomizes, it's the same as the spiritual names that we have, but it comes from a different, I think, I think they're self-selected. But then you have that, the quality of that totem creature. I mean, it's an American Indian tradition that the, the, the way that, be, that creature behaves is to remind you all the time. There's so many ways to work with yourself. It's really actually quite fun once you stop being embarrassed about being six. <laughs> That's the hard part. <laughs> okay, any other thoughts or comments before we go on? Did you learn anything during the break? uh, The people in the room were introducing themselves by their strengths. Did you learn anything about yourselves or each other that you didn't know before you did it? No? we recognize each other's strengths already? The The first person that I asked hung their head a little bit. Oh, no. And we laughed because that is the natural tendency. Oh, no. Do I have to say that? Yeah. But then we were all so well-behaved. It was all just very positive after that. (laughs) But the other side of it, too, you see, if we're afraid also to claim our strengths, we're also too egoically involved in them. You know, if you can just say quite simply, well, I'm really quite good at playing the piano. I've been studying my whole life you know, I love to paint and some of my paintings recently have really pleased me. I mean, if we can't just say that out loud, then what, what are we also, we're, we're, by the same token, we're still in some distortion. It's, re- it's really interesting. I, I mentioned this to you all before when, when my friend Tushti was dying in Portland and I was up there for several weeks in the house while she was passing. And there were all these collage materials there because when she'd been a little more more well... Other women friends had brought all these materials to do collages and they'd sat around and do, doing collages. And so I had a lot of time on my hands so I started making these collages, which I'd never really even respected the art form at all. And I got so engaged in it. I was getting up early and spending hours and just cutting things out of magazines and pasting them on like you do. Um, first of all, I began to thoroughly enjoy it and I really could appreciate why people did it. And then when it was finished, I I tend not to keep things. I'm not very sentimental. But I just couldn't throw them away. And finally I had them laminated so that I could have them. And I just, there's three or four of them, maybe there's five. But I I pulled them out recently, looked at them again, and it it was fascinating that they were one, I thought they were rather nice for what they were. I mean, it's not by any means great art, but they're a nice example of that. But it was also just interesting to sort of see who I am. You know, like the per- a person who would create something like this has a certain view of life, has a certain feeling about life, has a certain aesthetic. And just to very impersonally just look at it and ask yourself, if I saw that, what would I think about the person who made it? And you, just, you, can, learn, you can learn things and it puts you in a more honest relationship. I I in the house that I live in which has 3 bedrooms I basically live in one room. Recently I have had housemates who are permanent residents and not just guests with me. But every so often I just look at that room and I think, you know, who who would make this room? Who who would live in a room like this? And it it's just very interesting to sort of see who you are. I'm tidy but not excessively so. I obviously, you can just tell from looking at the room that I have a lot going on at the same time. You know, just, who is it? And then you, you just kind of become more comfortable with your reality or it, it points out to you, oh, I really need to, you know, the person who lives in this room has certain characteristics that I can see here that I really don't think she should have. So we need to start working with that. All that you're trying to do is just to get become objectively impersonal that's that's the beginning of understanding that i'm just a window for a greater reality this really isn't me this is just what you know what i remember a friend of mine hers she was very artistic and um she had a beautiful home that she designed herself but what was so interesting to me everything in her house was really on a big scale you know big furniture big thick counters in the kitchen Just everything was really big. And it also tended to be, um, I don't mean heavy in consciousness, but just heavy, like really solid, like it would take two or three people to push the table, you know, and even to move the couch would be a project. And I realized that I like everything to be really, really light, you know, just to like fall over. And I I think, uh, how different we are. You learn about who you are just by... Looking at the world that you've created, looking at the clothes in your closet, like what you know, who who would have a wardrobe like this? What kind of a person is this? It's lots of fun ways to to get yourself centered, you know. Because when Master says, "I killed Yogananda long ago," you kind of want to know how you get there. Yeah.
1: So can you also put uh, self forgetfulness into this context that that where does self-forgetfulness fit? Because I had this uh, this feeling that, I think I read somewhere, uh, somebody defined humility also as self-forgetfulness, even if it is not accurate. I just no, no. wanted so, to uh, put this in perspective.
0: Self-forgetfulness is a really good definition of humility because it, self-forgetfulness in contemplation of a greater reality, it's not... It's self-forgetfulness because you've expanded beyond the limitations and you're concentrating. I mean, anyone who, 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 who is a good artist of any kind, whether whatever your art form is, um, working with other people or... A physicist friend of mine was concerned because he said he was getting his PhD at Stanford. He said he goes early in the morning and then he looks up and it's the end of the day. And, you know, he's just been lost... And he was concerned about that. I said, you should thank God every single day. I mean, because he, he would just completely forget himself in the contemplation of this fascinating universe that he was so dedicated to. And when a person paints or dances, you just when you're really doing it well or sings, you're just in the experience. There's no self there. So self-forgetfulness, lack of self-concern, it's all a greater truth, and I mean, the opposite of that is, what about me? What about me? Am I singing right? Have I got this note right? Do people really like it? Oh dear, I'm, here I am, I'm making a mistake again. When I was first trying to write, <clears throat> 15 years ago, I was so critical that I literally would write all day and then by the end of the day I would have deleted everything I'd written. I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't let us, I mean, now I just think, I was so crazy. But I was. I was just always thinking about whether it was going to be good or not, whether I was going to be good or not, whether anybody was going to like it. And by the end, I would find that I didn't have any paragraphs. Really. Because I'd write a few sentences, I'd change them, I'd write them, I'd change them. It was completely nuts. But the opposite of that is just becoming so interested in what you're saying that you just start saying it or painting it and that the little self is just forgotten in the flow of energy. And then you... you, you look at it and you're just so pleased. I, I first learned that in, of all things, cooking. Because the, va- the value system that I was raised with did not... Cooking was not important. So I had no self-worth at all, at all, in terms of being a good cook. It just... So you're a good cook, you're a bad cook, it just meant nothing. And then I b- was responsible for the kitchen at Ananda Village, at the Ananda Retreat. And I was interested in nutrition and food, but I was a terrible cook. Just terrible. And the people rebelled. (laughs) There was a small in-house revolt. And by that point I had begun to realize that I needed to learn. And so Swamiji offered to teach me to cook when he saw that I was receptive. And we spent a weekend. He had a guest that weekend, a man named Swami Nirmalananda, who's now called Father Abbot George. And as it happened, he was a a rather ample person who really enjoyed his meals. I mean, he was a a big fellow, very nice, very unusual, very nice man, old friend of Swami, So he was visiting Swami for several days and I was there every day cooking three meals. Except Swami was cooking and I was helping him. And I came in when Swami was going to teach me to cook, I came with a notebook and a pencil. And I thought he was going to... I don't know what I thought he was going to do. You know, like this. And Swami just cooked kind of like this. You know, he just grabs this and takes that and throws this in and a little of that. And, oh, there's too much of this. We'll balance it with that. What would be good? You know, just... And I'm trying to take notes. You know, it's just like crazy. There was no way I could take notes. And there was no way I could actually even really participate because of the way he did it. So I just washed dishes and... Wash vegetables and chopped things and things like that after that weekend on Monday morning, I knew how to cook. I could just tell what was good without recipes, and I could sense what needed to be put into it. I have no idea. He just opened up this intuition that allowed me to sort of tune into a realm that i didn 't even know was there, and it was the first thing I ever learned to do intuitively and and that awareness that you could know things that that you weren't adding up rationally was was a huge learning for me but the only i couldn't possibly have learned it in anything that was important because my self concern would be way too intense for me to let it down but i was just learning to make soup i mean in my life who cares whether you make good soup or not but of course, I I learned. But then I got the idea: oh, that can, things can be done this way. And then cooking became a really important uh, sadhana for me, a way to give to people, to be busy. And the other thing about it, in terms of self-forgetfulness, was it just you, you just do it. They like it. They don't like it. It's over. You know, there's no. It, it doesn't have this. It's not a piece of art. It's not a book that you're publishing. It's, it's just like it's there. They like it. They don't. It's finished and i I got to be I began to have Swami's childlike ego about it, oh, you all will love the soup. this is really so good, and it would never cross my mind that I had made it because it just the whole thing was so mysterious to me and outside of anything. It was just like I would just praise my own cooking, and then gradually I began to think, maybe this really isn't something I should do, but again, it coming out so spontaneously taught me things. About why am I not this way about others, other things, because I'm so worried about whether people will like me or dislike me, whether I'll measure up, whether I'll succeed or fail. And I mean, this was a long time to integrate all of these things. But I learned I learned self-forgetfulness and intuition simultaneously with all of this. Does that make sense? Very. So that's one of the reasons why. Well, I learned to cook well, but Swami's mother had a aphorism if something is worth doing it's worth doing badly which was sort of her joke but i also understood that if you're not so worried about yourself that's what I, that's what the collages taught me it was like so unimportant to me to be good at that and i was i so accepted the fact that that wasn't my field of endeavor that i actually did i did some fairly nice things nothing that really matters but i enjoyed myself completely It got me up early in the morning, kept me happy all day. And in the end, I liked them so much, I still have them in a drawer. Because it didn't matter. But when it came to writing a book, for a while, I was absolutely out of my mind. For one simple reason. I was just so egoically involved, I couldn't do it. It took me years to break it. But remembering that I could cook helped me eventually to learn to write. Does that make sense? These are all really big lessons, especially they're big lessons for us on our path because unfortunately on this path of self-realization we don't try to overcome the ego by suppressing it. And see, that's been the traditional Catholic, Western Catholic way. You 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 don't transcend it, you just suppress it. You're never creative, you're just obedient, You you, you just completely erase yourself. But our path is a path of creative artistic expression. Swami and Master both set this example where we have to actually be channels for a higher awareness. So we really have to learn how to do it. And Swami wrote that book, Art as a... The Artist is a Channel. What's it called? Art is a Hidden Message. In which he 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 equates... You know, the path of self-realization seems to require creative self-expression. And it's... Uh, it it requires us now to think about all of this in a different way. We can't get out of it just by not doing it, which is what we were able to do when we were in those Catholic monasteries. We were just able to be nothing and that made us... I mean, it's not not a completely useless exercise by no means. It's the other way of transcending self, is to erase self. But it's not, unfortunately, the path that's offered to us this time. So these lessons are really important. You don't have to be good. You just have to be happy. <laughs> All right. Any other comments or questions? Otherwise, we'll call it a night. Okay. Thank you. Oh, this is the end. of This is the last class for this year. We don't meet in December. So we'll... And actually, I'm going to be away probably the first two weeks in January. So we might not come to this until the end of January again. Okay. pardon me we did uh, 326 27 28 and 29 yeah that was like we just raced through the book tonight